Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to the Isle of Faces podcast, episode 20. Yes, 20. We've somehow made it. And this is Scraps and Scrolls, or Valar Reredis, part 6 of 11. I am Sir Buckley, and I'm talking to you from still sunny, still very hot England. More thunderstorms tomorrow. Always cool. We like thunderstorms. Lady Buckley, not so much. Zelda the dog, not so much. But I do. Love a good thunderstorm. Aziz and the Shea hosted yet another wonderful live stream this past Sunday. And today, of course, I'll be going through the notes that, that they weren't quite able to get to or didn't have time for, hopefully, anyway. Because sometimes there's not enough time for me either. Not too much housekeeping to do today, luckily, so we should be able to get right to it. Of course, there are the usual thank yous to everyone for listens and downloads and likes and shares and whatever else. And, of course, to Aziz and the Shea for the wonderful work that they both do and allow me to be a part of. So very grateful there. Please make sure you're checking out all their episodes because somehow they're not just doing these uh valoridas live streams there's uh, crusader kings live streams there's other normal episodes coming up they got it all i don't know some kind of time machine going on there i don't like to ask questions but it's not natural how much work they do on top of that let me say thank you to all our patrons and their continued support it's wonderful to have you aboard and uh, really really very helpful especially i would like to give out a hello and a help you're well to sir jancy one of our jade branch patrons and to our new patrons who've joined recently as well thank you very much and if anyone is interested in having a look at those tiers especially just the names of the tiers i think that's probably the best bit then you can obviously find that on patreon.com slash eye of faces we'd love to have you aboard if that's not for you thanks for the listen anyway let's get to it today and let's go through what chapters we're going to be talking about so it's brand five the one with the wildlings and the fight in the forest it's Tyrion five the one with the sky cells and Tyrion's first big speech it's eddard 10 the dream dream of liano and the tower of joy and everything else going on there it's catelyn seven Tyrion's first trial where bron gets his fight on it's John Five. A lot of fives today. It's John Five, which is uh, the one, well, one of Maester Raymond mainly. That's where he makes his big debut. It's Tyrion Six, the one in the Clansmen. It's the one with uh, Shagger and goats. And finally, it is Eddard Eleven, the one where Ned sits the Iron Throne. So let's break into it straight away. Then Bran Five. It's been a while since we've seen Bran. I think as he's mentioned. And to be fair, actually, let me point out, he's got to most of my notes for this one, so we'll probably be able to go quite quickly through but yes quite a while since we've been to Winterfell a little bit of a catch-up chapter again like last week we're getting a lot of Ned only two chapters this week compared to three last week but a lot of Ned a lot of King's Landing focused stuff although we I suppose actually to be fair this week it's King's Landing and Eerie focused and we get a bit John in as well with Bran here too so we're missing Sansa and Aya for a while and no Daenerys either that's next week we'll get all three of those lovely ladies but for now it's Bran back up north and Bran is out enjoying his um his first taste of freedom in a while and you must imagine that it's very important if you remember the first Bran chapter after he woke up from his accident accident feeling very stifled and trapped in his room while Rickon went and played with the direwolf. So this is Bran actually being able to do something finally. And so ironic, I think, that he's enjoying his saddle, which he only has because of um, because of Tyrion and Tyrion's relationship with Jon. He kind of did Jon a favour there. While at the exact same time, I think it was the next chapter, Tyrion's actually in a kind of life or death uh, conflict with the Stark family, or at least Catelyn. So there's a little bit of irony there. As he spoke at length about the winter town, the importance of that both 
in history and coming up. It's quite funny, similar to Vastoff Rack, I think, which we spoke about last week, as it's it's a cultural centre, it's a, it's a signal. It keeps the Stark as those saviour figures that they've been for 8,000 years because they're always, always the place to go eventually for winter. So not just the Starks, but winter as well. It's the symbol, as is Vastoff Rack, where you have all these clans spreading out really wide, uh, these clans, Kalasars is what I should say, really wide across the Dothraki Sea and Essos, but they all come back eventually for these key moments, as do the people of the north. And apart from that, it's key for the survival of winter. So it's a really very critical of the um, part of the Boltons' slandering of the north and the Starks that they've broken that duty. And we're gonna, I guess we're going to find out what that means going forward, because as Z's pointed out, Wintertown is not in a good state currently when we've left it at the end of Dance of Dragons. So they meet a deserter in this chapter. He's with the wildlings, which is kind of easy to forget, I think, when you because that wasn't in the show, if I remember rightly. It was just wildlings, possibly. I might be wrong there. And, you know, going forward, you remember Osher and you remember Stiv. You don't really remember the uh, deserter. I've already forgotten what his name is, if they even mention it. But meeting a deserter, it links Bran back to his first chapter with Ned and Jory and all those other people that are gone now. It's just Rob and Fionn left, really. And similar to last time, it ends in death. It's the same thing. So it's Bran stepping up from that situation, which was quite safe and uh, kind of regulated, I guess, to this wild situation where anything could have happened and very nearly did. And once Bran realises that the wild things mean him harm, his first reaction is to say his name. I'm Bran Stark. I'm uh, Stark of Winterfell. You can't do this because that's obviously what he knows. That is who he is. That's what they're based on if you're uh, upper nobility and you're especially you're the ruler of your land. So, of course, that's what he's going to rely on because mainly, normally, people will go, oh, shit, he's stuck, get your hands off. Obviously not today. And he learns an important lesson with these wildlings that he's going to repeat later on that actually sometimes it's safer to not know uh, that he's a Stark and we're going to see that a lot when he goes north with Jojen and Mira and Hodor, of course. Now, when Rob comes to do his uh, big, big brother saving thing he kind of chooses that honor and obviously bran over logic he, he says this he says put down your steel now and i promise you shall have a quick and painless death honorable that's kind of a nice thing to say i guess but who's surrendering to a 15 year old just so that they can die quickly that's not going to work is it i think we knew from the outside now to be fair rob's got to kind of think on his feet here he's just walked into a clearing and his brother might die so he is doing this pretty quickly and he's never actually had to fight someone to the death or kill anyone before so it's all new ground for Rob as well and we're going to talk about Rob in a minute but um this is probably not his best choice and you can see he's kind of kind of green and not really know what he's doing but there are some clues to the upcoming war as well where Rob maybe leans towards that family and that honor instead of the more pragmatic what's actually going to work and well we know how that ends up and like I say about Rob I think as he's got to my note about how we see all this through Bran's side of things. We never get Rob's, but this is all just as important for his his uh, growth and everything else. And he also says when he's arguing with Fionn later, and I think you can see that he does get a bit frustrated with and guilty with himself for letting Bran get in this situation when he's admonishing Fionn. Now, he's, he's kind of right when he's telling off Fionn, but he's also kind of wrong because Fionn did save Bran. That's an argument for another day. But I think you can see he is also frustrated at himself for, and definitely feeling guilty. He's supposed to be, he's the big brother, he's the lord, he's supposed to be looking after Bran and he nearly died. Can you imagine if it had gone wrong 
the, the what Rob would have felt after doesn't bear thinking about but he's arguing with Fionn after and talking about um, I think it's Mr Lewin and he says I listen to him I listen to everyone and again we spoke about this a lot it's those Ned lessons that uh, come up a lot in Aya's chapters and John's chapters about how Ned would have a different dinner guest every every evening and listen to people whoever whatever their station so we can see Rob already taking those on board and putting them into practice so that's good and there we go like I say Aziz got to a lot of that those notes so we can already move on to Tyrion 5 so goodbye to Bran we won't see him for a little while whereas Tyrion we've got a lot left so Tyrion he gets a lot of focus probably more than Ned actually in, in this week's group of chapters because we have two Tyrion chapters plus Catelyn's chapter is largely based around Tyrion so he's getting the, the limelight so let's talk about Tyrion and how well he actually does in this chapter considering the situation he's in so Lysa, she's she's really going all in in switching up the blame of Cersei to Tyrion just because he happens to be there. And as he spoke about her intentions and the, her logic. But Tyrion himself, he actually does he does a really good job to keep it together in this chapter. If we think about those sky cells, and they really are one of the worst cells in all of the great castles even though you've got black cells and the the damp of river run and the bowels of castle rock these are still i don't know if they're the worst but they are pretty bad he's got to defeat temperature he's got to defeat just ro rolling out and dying he's being starved by maud kind of he's being beaten by maud and he doesn't come out of it too badly at least at the beginning he's still got his wits about him he hasn't just cracked and admitted to something to make it stop or anything worse he comes out and he's still got his wits about him classic Tyrion the Tyrion we know I think is really being formed in these chapters we see that when he comes out and he challenges Lysa and the honor of the veil and to be fair for all the cleverness of it him turning it around on Lysa like that it still only actually works because of his name and his stature in society this isn't going to work if Marillion tries to it. obviously you need to be someone of real worth and have a name behind you like Tyrion does but here we're on one end of the spectrum the privileged spectrum because here okay good it works all fine and dandy but the other end of the story or the series at the end of dance that's when Tyrion doesn't have his name or his wealth he's off on his own he's really uh, apart from that which he was relied on which again we spoke about last week and it's a completely different ball game even though he is actually still smart enough to find a way to use them even when he doesn't have them we see the armor that he told john about it's not perfect it does have cracks and these circumstances obviously do lend an extreme pressure but almost everything that Tyrion is sensitive about is being laid out and highlighted in front of this crowd by Lysa. It's kind of like a bad high school nightmare. His armour is taking a lot of hits and we do see the further we go, by the time we get to Storm obviously, it's taking too many hits and he's really kind of cracked but that's not to say it starts here, he's put up with this his whole life but he doesn't normally have to put up with it in life or death circumstances. Tyrion thinks about how Jamie and Cersei would react to the news of his capture and trial and he is actually pretty dead on um if you look if you go and look up the quote it is pretty much how they actually react so there's just more evidence of his knowledge in people's personalities and especially those of his family and especially those two siblings which is obviously going to come into play a lot later 
I really love his use of propaganda. He goes shouting at Marillion and says about, you know, suggests lyrics for song that would highlight Lysa kind of playing outside the rules here. It's just such a clever way to do it. He's not even saying it to her. He's just making sure everyone's going to know, which would obviously be much worse. He basically makes Lysa... He forces her to make kind of like a HR apology statement about, no, I am acting in proper channels. I'm not cutting any corners. This is a... The veil would like to apologise for any... It's those kind of things. I think as he's mentioned this, but it's worth saying again. Just poor Servardis. He was the only one to point out how it was pretty ridiculous and no honour in it. He's the only one to really stand up against Lysa. He doesn't doesn't seem like he's one of the ones just uh, doting on her. We get that in the Catelyn chapter a bit later on, how kind of sickening the, the doters are. He doesn't seem like he's one of those, but he, he dies anyway. And even though this is a Tyrion chapter, we do actually see, kind of get hints that Catelyn is realising how Lysa is actually screwing all this up. Even without her in the monologue, we can see her just kind of clocking what's going on. So that's quite talented from George there to be able to slip that in. Now there's lots of lots in common with Tyrion's second trial in Storm. Firstly, obviously, he's innocent in both. That's kind of most important. But both of these trials are being pushed by two widows who are not in the greatest of mental states. Obviously Lysa has kind of got this long ongoing problem and by Storm that trial comes about after the death of Cersei's firstborn so she's obviously not in a good place and they're both really pushing it. So there's further Lysa-Cersei comparisons there again like I mentioned last week. Um, both of them have kind of staged false trials before. We've had this one and not well I think we see how that goes and obviously the one in um the one in Storm is just almost a complete farce and everyone's lying left, right and centre and then they get Shay involved and it all goes terribly wrong. And we also have two different confessions, which actually goes quite well to show Tyrion's journey between book one and three. Because here his confession is fake, is obviously fake, but he uses humour and he uses sarcasm more. He's doing it to get a rise out of the Lords of the Vale. There's a real purpose behind it. He's manipulating the system, like we just said. It's the complete opposite in Storm of Swords. By then, he's he's world-weary, he's hurt, he's angry at what's just happened with Shay and everything else. He was, even before he went on trial, the his POV chapter at Joffrey's wedding, which I just so happened to read today, is, you know, he's not in a good place. He's so frustrated with Shay and with Sansa being, his marriage with Sansa just not being very fun at all for either of them. And then you get Joffrey on top of it. He's in a bad place. So then with a murder accusation and, again, threaten his life on top of that, we get that classic speech, which, to be fair, I do think they did a bit better on the show. But that's not to say it's not good in the books. It's perfectly, it's perfectly good. And he just goes blitz, basically. It's just complete anger. There's no point to it. He's not going to get anything. He's not manipulating anything there. He's not doing that speech because someone in the crowd is going to save him like Bronn does here is literally just laying it all out. So that's a, a really good way to frame where Tyrion gets to from Game of Thrones to Storm of Swords. Given that this is our first viewing of a trial by combat, and and also that Tyrion has to actually argue he's legally allowed to have one, it's worth noting that the current status of Westeros is set up, if we want to look real far back, it's actually set up by the fact that Aerys, the Mad King, besmirched the Holy Vow of trial by combat because Rickard came down and he... That's what he chose, and Ares just kind of made a mockery of the whole thing. He said, you're going to fight fire, which is the champion of House Targaryen. Obviously, he's completely lost it, and that all kicks off 
the Rebellion. Yeah, I think that's kind of similar, maybe on a lesser scale, but it's kind of similar to the Boltons and the Freys besmirching guest right. Trial by combat is one of these ingrained things. And I know it's a byproduct of the Faith of the Seven, so it's perhaps not as ingrained as the guest right, which goes back to the old gods and is obviously held in high esteem by the North, but it's still one of these old things that you just don't mess with, and Ares did. And again, I think Aziz did note this, Tyrion, he, he notes that there is a big difference between John. Aaron, John Aaron and Bran's killings and that they're kind of not really powerful and he becomes annoyingly close to figuring out that, that it's Littlefinger and he probably should have been able to actually work out if you combine his talks of Catelyn on the high road so there's yet more hope being dangled in front of us just the same as last week we're just gonna have to get used to that hope alas again we'll go back to alas okay moving on to Eddard 10 the big dream chapter very famous chapter Aziz I can't remember if he tweeted or mentioned it on the live stream, but it's one of those chapters, it might be the most analysed chapter, maybe, in all of the Song of Ice and Fire. There's a few contenders, and this is definitely one of them. There's a whole bunch that Aziz and Shay had to go through on Sunday of this, but I had some other thoughts as well, because this isn't actually one I've looked at a whole bunch, because so many people have done it already and will do it better than me. But I've had a crack, and I've come up with some stuff, so let's have a look. Firstly, um, I've never considered before, but it's actually weird how close John came to being another fake Aegon, or another young Griff, if you want to call him that. It, like, if you think, if any of the Kingsguard, or maybe even the other Northmen had survived, let's say Ned died in the duel, like, funnily enough, my recent playthrough of Crusader Kings 2, where he died in the duel with Oswell went. So, there you go, could happen. But let's say Ned died and John gets taken by one of the Kingsguard or the other Northmen or whoever. You just don't know. They could have easily connected with Varys and kicked off their own thing and or Illyrio or any other party that essentially could do the same thing and stash them away or could form another rebellion around him instead of Viserys. It's really actually pretty lucky that Ned firstly survived, obviously, and also took John because you just don't know what could have happened. But that's interesting to think how close John to came to being that, depending on what happens between him and young Griff if they should meet later on. It's also pretty lucky for Ned, in a weird way, that only Howl and Reed survived, because he's basically the one guy who has absolute zero interest in the politics of the realm, because he's a, a Cranagman and they just don't do that kind of thing. The rest of them, Martin Cassell, Wool, and we've got a Risewell, and we've got a, um, a Glover, they were Ned's friends, okay, fine, and he obviously trusted them to a large degree to bring them down here for this deal but could he really have trusted them for 20 years without telling anyone would he would he absolutely know with certainty that they're not gonna tell anyone ever it's a very big secret to literally keep completely strum about forever you don't know if anyone had fallen on times needed to sell the information or they could have told a loved one ned resisted telling catelyn but that doesn't mean all of them would be so prepared to do that to their own wives or whoever and, you know, maybe their loved one is ambitious and wants to sell a secret. You just don't know. So I wonder how far Ned would have gone to keep his promise to Lyanna. If all of those Northmen had survived, what would Ned have done? Interesting to think. If you think about it, really, the dream does serve as just a tease in, a, in an overall sense. We don't really get any definite, definite answers. It's, just, it's basically telling us what questions we need to ask, really. But it's still being... It's, still been built up all the way from Ned's first POV chapter. So to call it anything less than a major, major chapter, a major point in the story of the Song of Rise of Fire, that's a huge understatement. Because this is 
why Ned is who he is. It's the defining moment of Ned's life. Changes everything for him. The entire direction of his life, pretty much here on this day. And that's after fighting a war that's <laughs> defeated a 300-year-old dynasty. That's actually paling in comparison to this one day for Ned. He loses his sister. He he must know that his friendship with Robert will never be the same when he takes on John. And he also takes on this lifelong burden of lies and promises that goes against his own values. He does away with his honour straight away. He knows what's going to be required of him for the rest of his life and he signs straight up. So yeah, complete crossroads for Ned here. I think as he's mentioned that there obviously must have been more people at, um, at the Tower of Joy. It's easy to forget about Wyler and again, how could we don't know. How was Ned so sure of her silence? We just don't know, do we? Maybe that'll be answered, maybe it won't, but it'd be definitely interesting to find out. wonder also how different the Trident might have gone if these Kingsguard had been there instead of here. They very easily could have ended the re could have ended the rebellion entirely, or at least kept Rhaegar alive. We don't know, do we? Because these were three of the best. You've got the Lord Commander, you've got the Swords of the Morning. I'm sure Oswald Went is plenty capable. He killed Ned in my Crusader Kings uh, playthrough, so he can't be too shabby. A lot, of, just a lot of what ifs in this chapter. Basically, we just don't know quite enough for answers, but lots of questions. I'm thinking the North isolates itself even more than usual. It's obviously the most isolated. Well, is it the most isolated? I guess Dawn has a a good argument, but I say North more so. But anyway, after this, Ned has just inherited the the North. He's the warden in the North now, and. We don't really ever get a sense that he's acting in that capacity in terms of interacting with the other six kingdoms unless he's really forced to, like he is for the Greyjoy Rebellion. If he really has to, okay, he'll come down and deal with stuff. But it's not like he's going down to King's Landing every two years to make sure everything's good, is it? He goes to the north, he stays in the north, largely because of John. If John had not been an issue, maybe he's on a bit better terms with Robert and he does connect a bit more. And speaking of Arthur Dane, I do wonder, because the story is... The story is that Ned killed Arthur Dane in single combat. I don't think it's large, largely known that Howland Reed was a critical part of that. I doubt most people know who Howland Reed actually is. They know Ned. They know Ned went to the Tower of Joy. Well, they know Ned went somewhere, and they know Arthur Dane died there. So I just wonder how many times Northern Lords, possibly even Robert, went up to Ned and said, Oh, Ned, you killed the Sword of the Morning at Arthur Dane, the greatest swordsman of the age. Well done, give him a big old slap on the back, trying to hand him a pint. And just, I just like to imagine how intensely uncomfortable that would have made Ned, knowing the truth. Even if he had done it on his own, he wouldn't have reveled in it like that. But it's just interesting, because that is obviously the kind of thing that these lords... You can just see the great John just come up and go, oh, pick him, just pick him up, go, oh, well done, Ned. We get a real sense of two generations being connected through this dream and Ned's previous chapter and what's going on in general. Like I said, there's a cassel with Ned, there's a wool, and we do have, I think as he's mentioned, Big Bucket Wool in Dance of Dragon. He's going coming down from the uh, from his home to do it all again, go Team North. It's quite notable, really, that they're not big houses with Ned in this. There's no cast arcs or umbers, there's no mandalies. I think he's brought his friends more than his bannermen, to be fair. Maybe maybe that's part of it, maybe it's just because they're more more available because they're not so big. Who knows? I like to think it's Ned seeing the value in people rather than bringing the big names. But you've also got to think that because these are lesser names, and like I said, no one's really telling Howland Reed's part in this story. They remember Ned was there, they remember the Kingsguard were there. 
no one's other than Ned, who obviously is never forgetting those names. I think he brings that up. But in general, for most of Westeros, they don't care about these lesser names. They care about those famous Kingsguard. But they all end up in the same grave, don't they? Hmm. That says something. If we're going to say that A Song of Ice and Fire is largely about the passing through from childhood to adulthood and growing up, it's for the Stark children, Sansa and Aya, and Bran and Jon and others as well, well, the Rebellion, and especially the Tower of Joy, they are that for Ned. This was this is Ned's A Song of Ice and Fire series, if you want to look at it that way. But coming back to reality, let's wake up with Ned. And he, we see very quickly his injury is pretty much at the worst possible time. A little earlier or a little later, and he might have been able to piece it all together, might have been able to get through to Rob, to, to Robert, sorry, and the entire War of the Five Kings might have been avoided. As it is, not the case. I just love Cersei's claims about Ned being drunken and visiting the brothel and starting a brawl. It's just laughable. She doesn't. She's not really playing the crowd, is she? Of all the people to try and uh, make those claims to, Robert is the worst choice. Robert, of all people, is going to know. No, Ned. He doesn't even know how to get drunk and go to a brothel. I know how to get drunk and go to a brothel, but my buddy Ned, not a chance. Just Cersei being rubbish. Whereas Ned, he's actually pretty nibble on his toes in terms of politics and talking to these two. Considering he's just woke up from days-long sleep, he's just had a really bad fever dream that reminds him of the worst time of his life, and he's on this kind of weird medication, he's actually he's actually pretty switched on. He's able to act so the order to take Tyrion was a decision of hand as Hand of the King, rather than as Ned Stark, which is something I brought up last week. I seem to keep saying that. So it's just a bit more playing within the rules. It's quite clever. Now, after Robert has his lashing out at Cersei and uh, he gets in a bit of a slump and he says, it's quite a famous line, I think, how would you fight someone you can't hit? Which is Robert just summed up in a sentence, isn't it? It really gets across that he's just so out of his depth, he doesn't know what he's doing here. Almost enough to feel bad for him, but then you remember he has just hit his wife. So maybe you kind of pity him instead. He just seems so lost and confused, he just does not know what he's doing. Ned's just had all these dreams and memories of Grand Kingsguards and times where things were as they were supposed to be. It's the Kingsguard as they were supposed to be, Golden Knights, better times. And he's very quickly brought back to the reality of how things are now, how thing, how far things have fallen. Robert says that it wasn't kingly, and it's right, there's no kingliness going on here. There's no knighthood or honour going on. And to be fair, I've got to say as well, there are some similarities between Ned and dear Sir Barry, Barristan the Bold and others also, by they've all witnessed a king abuse his wife and do nothing about it. Ned doesn't do anything about it here. No, I don't I don't think there is anything he could have done or can do. He's not going to change Robert just by saying, Robert, don't you hear? But it's despairing thinking about because that is uh, a theme or a question that comes up a lot, especially later on, about the Kingsguard and what they do and what they witness and what they don't interfere with. Not that Ned is Kingsguard, but still he is present, so call it what you will. Right, on to Catelyn Seven, the one with the with the duel, with the trial by combat. And there's not too many notes in here because so much of the chapter is taking up So much of the chapter is taking up with the fight itself. But I like how we open with Catelyn's description of the veil it's another beautiful description from george it's a beautiful morning even though it's a day guaranteed to 
end in death for someone. I think Catelyn actually literally says that to um, Sir Roderick. And as he's got to my, I think he got to my note about the, we're getting into the logistics and the, the nitty-gritty of the war. And uh, yeah, I wrote down about how this is something you come back to on second, third, fourth, whatever rereads about you know actually piecing together the war and being able to see it a lot more clearly and i actually remember the first ever time i spoke to aziz on skype i was going through i think it was my secondary read um and i think one of the first things i said to him was that i can see the war so clearly now and i was so interested in all the the hints about the battles and the logistics and where they're moving and the strategy and tactics i think that was the first uh, ever live conversation i had with aziz yeah but back to the book it's poor edmure at this point isn't it he it's like he's never heard of tywin it's a great example of these turny nights and the boys of summer. Edmure thinks he's still playing a game which has rules. Now, we don't re- we're not exactly sure of Edmure's age, but he was from 10 to 15 in, during the years of the rebellion. So you think he might have a slightly better idea than just asking for Tywin's intent. That's what he's done. He sends the uh, riders to go and ask Tywin to declare his intent, which just makes you laugh, I think, because... Let's say he had answered. Let's say Tywin uh, replies and says, Dear Edmure, we are coming to burn your country to the ground and slaughter all your family. What do you think Edmure does then? It doesn't matter. Not that Tywin would ever do that, and obviously, but I think his intent is pretty clear anyway. And to be fair, later on, Edmure does do much better in his second attempt in Clash when, and that, when they defend the fort, and that's against Tywin still it's on the other side now it's on the other side of river run now but still he does much better so i wonder is that him now did he just not take this threat seriously enough did he just not think it was going to actually really go into war so he just needed to calm stuff down a bit the not yet know about how to fight properly and he's learned since then or did he just need this shaming of his defeat and jamie jamie's victories as well to push him into really fighting properly against tywin later I gotta say, there's a special place in my heart for Sir Roderick in this chapter. He's he's been reading this letter about the war to um, to Catelyn, but I just love he makes zero fuss when Catelyn says they're gonna have to take another ship, even though we know how much he hates ships and he doesn't. They don't agree with him, but he just says, oh, "Okay, if you want to." And uh, also, he gets to show off a bit his a bit of his superior insight. He First, he says about the like of Jamie using poison and how that's just that's not how Jamie operates. But he also gets a bit about Bronn's tactics and the duel. And it's just nice for Roderick to be able to show off a little bit because he hasn't actually got that long left either. Now, a reread, we can really see Littlefinger's fingerprints all over this chapter. Assumedly, it's under his direction that Lys has been keeping information from Catelyn or at least delaying information from Catelyn. And that she also says no when Brynden the blackfish our favorite he asks to take a thousand knights down into the riverlands and defend riverrun she says no even though those a thousand knights they really could have turned the tide especially in this early on bit where it's not kind of full on if you can hear a dog barking outside i think that might be mine hopefully a buckley is on the prowl anyway so brendan to be fair maybe we should thank lysa because him not being able to take those a thousand knights through the high road it does free him up to go with Catelyn and eventually become Rob's master scout. And uh, he definitely has a big, big, big effect on the war effort. So maybe we should actually thank Lysa here. Now, I suppose she is doing that, or Peter is telling her to do that, because he wants the veil out of the war so that he can have enough time to eventually gain a landed title so that he can marry her and he gets to 
basically inherit a veil of full strength. He doesn't want a veil that's been lost half of its knights to war and anything like that, or is kind of spread out everywhere. He wants to get there and have all his power nestled right underneath him. So I'm guessing that's his motivation. Now, again, this is quite similar to uh, what we mentioned in that last Tyrion chapter, but the quote goes, Lysa had named Cersei in, in the letter she had sent to Winterfell, but now she seems certain that Tyrion was the killer, perhaps because the dwarf was here while the queen was safe behind the walls of the Red Keep. So again, we have a near miss of mystery solving. It's another alas. Get the alas sound effect ready. It's Catelyn. Catelyn can see that things don't add up and that Lysa is acting as an opportunist rather than someone actually telling the truth. But much like Ned and King's Landing um, with Peter, Catelyn's mind never really stretches far enough to believe that Lysa could do something so, so vile as trick the Starks into entering the war. It's just not possibility so she doesn't even think about it really i guess that's actually the tully tully words working against her, their family duty honor she just wouldn't believe it of lysa if she didn't believe it of, of littlefinger she's not believing it of lysa speaking of lysa just a funny another funny quote she says enough servardis lady lysa called down finish him now my baby is growing tired i just like lysa genuinely believes that vardis is winning until he dies she's just not got a clue what's going on I spoke a few weeks ago, I spoke a lot a few weeks ago about Peter's hero story and how it's fostered that lifelong hatred that he's still obsessed with now and he's basically dedicated his life to. We get some details on that, especially Littlefinger's bitterness of after the fa- after the duel with Brandon, his bitterness regarding Edmure, and it's that same bitterness that is now basically extended, extended to everyone. He hates everyone, Littlefinger, if we think about it really. I suppose this note is actually kind of a Catelyn chapter behind. I should have put it in last week's, but it strikes me how Bronn, he's, later on, he's too smart to fight the mountain because he knows he'll lose. But he does volunteer for Tyrion here in this trial. I just like the idea of Bronn looking around when Tyrion's making that speech and thinking, right, if she picks him or him or him, yeah, I could take any of them. And let's not forget that people like Link or Bray are in that crowd, and he's got Valyrian steel sword. And Bronn is obviously still quite ready to uh, take on whoever, whatever may, ha- may happen. Finally, for this chapter, a quick note on young Robert, or sweet Robin, or Robin, whatever you want to call him. It really comes across how badly he deteriorates after Lysa's death here. This sweet Robin, or Robert, or whatever, he is so much stronger than the version we get in Feast uh, when when Sansa becomes Elaine. We consider that's like, what, two years later? And he's at, he seems way younger and more fragile in that version than this one. Not that he's a modicum of strength here, but he seems a lot better than he does later on. So we just we can see things don't go well for him. Okay, moving on to John 5, the one with Maester Raymond, the one where John becomes... He does war without a sword, I think we can say, kind of, in this one. So there's a lot more character work than actual action in this one i think that's common for some of the chapters at the moment because ned's king's landing investigation is so much the focus especially last week this week big chapters as well so we're getting that bran one earlier on that was kind of a even though it had action as in fighting in it but it's more character work same with john here the plot isn't moving too far forward because we've got a big Tyrion bit and a big eddard bit this week but the thing so the character work that's going on is John growing up again and finding a new way to get what he wants. He's not being the rebellious teenager anymore. He's not making snarky comments to Alice Fawn. 
he's not ganging up on Rast or anything. Now he's actually working within the system to try and affect change, which is much harder. We see him appreciating the value of variety and different types of people, which I think, as he's uh, mentioned, is good groundwork for his time as Lord Commander. It's also good groundwork for his opinions on the wildlings later in Dance, in terms of everyone has a use, or they're at least more useful alive than Xana White. So they're setting seeds there. And he's, to be fair, he's just so much deeper than your stock brand hero that you find in many other uh, fantasies. He's already transformed so much from that first chapter on the wall. He's no longer going on about how it's cold. He's not complaining about the people as much, even though he still does look elsewhere with longing. But it's obvious he's carved a little bit of a niche at the wall, even if it's not the best place. It's not ultimately the place he wants to be. He's found a little bit of comfort there, even though he and like I say, he does still feel the pull. He's not not so much he's being pushed anymore. Now he's being pulled, which is a good link for what's to come in Clash of Kings. Again, we get some more awful, awful teaching from Sir Alistair. He's really degrading the, the graduating class and saying they don't deserve to graduate. He still calls them all the, the stupid names and whatever else, says they're going to die. It's just, it's not a good tactic because really he's just insulting himself. If he's saying that they shouldn't graduate and they're not ready, well, that's literally his job. So what's he saying other than, hey guys, look, listen, I've not done my job with any of these people. They're not ready. I doubt he ever says that to anyone. And I'm sure that irony is lost on him. But really, there should be some kind of change once they get, once they, maybe not right now, but when they take their vows at least, he should be able to just at least shake their hand. And even if he's not going to be friendly, I don't think we can ask that of Sir Alistair. At least give them a bit more respect because they are technically the same level as him now. They're all, all black brothers. But obviously, he's not going to do that because he is a bitter, bitter man. I do find it funny that John, he when he meets with Mr. Eamon, he makes this argument and champions the the builders and the stewards and says how important they are and we need people of all types and uh, Samwell can be one of those. But later, it might be his next chapter, he actually briefly reverts to that southern teenage John because he is named a steward. He goes, no, not me though. You can't name me a steward. I mean like one of the other useless guys, even though they can kind of be useful. But it's just quite funny that he's like, he just turns around on him like that. It's also slightly ironic that it's for all this talk about how they're not fighters but they can do other stuff. Well, they do. It is mostly stewards and builders who end up doing the fighting when John first returns to Castle Black after being with the Wildlings, when Stir, the Fen, comes up from the south and with Egret, etc., etc. Uh, I just read that chapter last week, so it really stands out this kind of John and a few green boys and the, the old boys and not the proper garrison and obviously that's even without the the main fighting force having gone north and died with Dior Mormon. Final note for this chapter, quite a quick one this time. So Chet, he obviously he comes back in the story as a um as a prologue character and we find out he's not very nice. And we do get some clues to that now, but we don't learn the full extent of it. But in fairness to him, he does we can at least say he does have a legitimate gripe against uh, Jon Snow. Now, he turns that into a, a thing about Sam as well, and it's not really Sam's fault. He doesn't ask for any of this. But John, he does kind of turf Chet out of his nice, cushy job. But then again, if you want to look at it a different way, Sam is obviously way better suited to be Eamon's uh, assistant or whatever you want to call him. So kind of fair, but not fair to, um, to Chet. And I don't think he needs to be murderous about it and intend on 
killing Sam and John just for that. He could have other jobs. Or he could actually still technically be Eamon's assistant anyway. If he's got two, I'm sure he could do it with three or whatever. Who knows? But he doesn't need to go the uh, direction he does. Anyway, on to Tyrion 6, which is a fairly short chapter. There's kind of two parts to it. It's firstly Tyrion telling Bronn and us the story of Tysha in his youth and then uh, getting his chat on with the clansmen and taking advantage of that situation. So firstly, the Tysha story is obviously not one he shares openly. I doubt he's retold this story very often at all, if ever really. I don't think he mentions telling anyone else specifically at any point. So one, it shows how close he is with Bronn already, although the fact that they probably will die in the next few hours probably plays into that. But I also wonder if it's just the effect of the kidnapping and the the mental torture of the sky cells and everything else just catching up with him and really just letting it all out. And again, we're finding the reason for the, for the armour and for the sarcasm and why he is like he is. As we just found out with Ned, even though we had a lot more clues with Ned, he was he is like he is because of what happened in the Tower of Joy. Tyrion is like he is because of what happened with Tysha. And before that, when they're kind of um, hammering out their little relationship, Bronn and Tyrion, Tyrion says this. He says, What do you want, Bronn? Gold? Land? Women? Keep me alive and you'll have it. Now, okay, fair enough. But Bronn, he surely never expected land to be included in that. At least not straight off. (laughs) On the first offer. Gold? Okay. Women? Sure. Land? Much bigger deal than just women or gold. And as we're going to see later in Storm and Feast with Castle Stokeworth and what Bronn gets up to, he definitely develops a taste for it. This is his first climb up the ladder. And while knighthood, that gets you up a a step, and gold, that's definitely going to help. Land, you really skip a few rungs there. It's really changing class type stuff. But anyway, back to the the meat of this chapter, which is Taisha, the story, which we don't need to go through, I'm sure you know already. But it's a real blindside for readers, first-time readers, of learning of this because there's no warning actually before this of Tyrion having having ex-wife or being married although we can probably guess that there's something in his past because there is with all the other characters I don't think anyone would have just guessed this and definitely not the details now there's a good relationship between the that hammering out with Bronn and the story because Tyrion links Bronn with gold and in the story obviously gold plays a large part in what happens to Taisha, even if it's pretty dark circumstances. But we can see how that has hammered the worth of gold and the worth of currency and money into Tyrion's psyche and why his relationships are so difficult, how it's so hard for him to distinguish between genuine uh, emotional relationships and ones that he buys. He probably really just has one emotional relationship, that's with Jamie. Everything else is something he's bought basically those men he had with him at the beginning of um when he went up to castle black and back down again and found catelyn they were on the payroll they weren't his friends they didn't just go with him to keep him company they were on the payroll and this is obviously hugely important for his relationship with shay because he tries very hard to to square it in his mind that or he kind of he half persuades himself that she does love him and then he keeps going back the other way and saying no don't be stupid you are paying her and it's a big conflict all the way through through Clash and Storm, but especially Storm, obviously. It's kind of important that this story comes right before we actually meet Tywin. In Tyrion's next POV, I'm pretty sure it's... In the, yeah, it must be the next one. 
which is probably next week, we meet Tywin for the first time just before the Green Fork. So it's important that we get this story right now so that when we see Tywin, we are, as readers, instantly hateful of him because we know what he's done in the past. And obviously we get the story from Tyrion's point of view and it is a horrible story from that point of view. But if we stop and think about what must have been going through Tysha's mind in those moments and, and especially at the end of that story, it becomes it becomes really sickening and really hard to think about. If we're thinking this is enough to give even Bronn pause and we know the lengths that Bronn is willing to consider and even this kind of sh- shocks him or at least you know makes him take note. I think, to be fair, if this has been the only bad thing Tywin ever did, say he did none of, well, I'm not going to go through the list of everything else, but imagine he had never done any of it and this was his one black mark. I think that alone catapults him still right to the top of A Song of Ice and Fire's Most Awful People. This is one of the worst things in this whole story, even though it's years and years in the past. It's probably not a coincidence, then, that right after we tell this story, Tyrion has a dream about his father. Uh, Let me read you this quote. He says, This time, he was the goaler, not the prisoner. He was big, with a strap in his hand. He was hitting his father, driving him back towards the abyss. So, obviously, he's dreaming of the sky cells, which he probably would after a stay in them. But he's thinking about taking revenge on Tywin and dreaming of his murder, which I'm sure I don't need to say is very heavy foreshadowing for what's going to come afterwards. It's not an accident that this dream comes after telling Bronn the story. But then the clansmen show up, and Tyrion, he is really masterful in his talking with them. Very, very easily, him and Bronn could have just been killed straight away, and if Tyrion hadn't got the chance to talk, they would have died straight away. But Tyrion actually gets exactly what he wants by knowing exactly how to dance the dance. And he's really entering kind of Hand of the King Tyrion territory now. And I won't go through, I won't relay exactly what he says, I'm sure you've read the chapter, but it's him having that knowledge of how to get through to these people. And it's still going out on a limb, it was no by no means guaranteed, but hey, he does it and it works. Let me read you another quote here. So Tyrion, he says, I have some questions that want answering concerning a certain dagger. Press the alas alarm. That's what I'm going to call it from now on. The alas alarm. <sighs> if only he had followed through with that, but he actually just kind of forgets. At least until near the end of Storm, when he kind of comes back to him. But even then, he only thinks about the Joffrey side of it. He just kind of forgets the little finger stuff. It seems to be a common theme. People just forgetting little fingers' involvement with this, uh, with this dagger. Lastly, for Tyrion Six. Uh, I wanted to say, like, I, I just truly hope the clansmen do come back into into the story in, the, in some way and that we do see an after effect of Tyrion's influence and it didn't just end with after the Battle of the Blackwater. It seems like it's been kind of too long for that to happen now. You've got to imagine that there's a good chance some of the clansmen that Tyrion knew, or at least the ones he actually really interacted with, they could well be dead by now. There might be new clan leaders or whatever else. But still, it's good to imagine because I would love them to come back in the story, as I say. If Tyrion, if he comes back to the Vale, maybe with Daenerys, if he, if he recruits them again to destabilise the Vale, even turns them against Littlefinger, that could be cool. I suppose we could see them in Sansa's POV. She's down from the Eyrie now. Clansmen could uh, attack her party in some way, maybe. Maybe the Knights of the Vale do actually get to go off to the war finally, and the clans could take advantage of that and spread throughout the Vale. Uh, or maybe they get more aggressive in winter because they need food even more than normal, so they get a bit more daring. Who knows? I just want, I just want to see him back. I'm just trying to think of any, anyway. But 
let's leave that for now and head for our final chapter of the day it is Eddard 11 and it's the one with Ned on the Iron Throne and basically he holds court for the uh, the attacks of Gregor, the people who have suffered under the attacks of Gregor again. So this is one of well, probably is the best example we ever get we ever get of Ned actually acting as hand of the king. We don't actually see him doing his duties very often, really, through the um through this book. But here he is, literally punching the clock and putting in the hours. Now, if we think about these uh, these farmers and villagers who've been brought in front of um, in front of Ned. It's a big step up from when Tyrion and Catelyn brought the, the Game of Thrones down on the people at the end at the crossroads. At least those people had a choice of sorts. They still they knew they were getting dragged in. They probably just wanted to get far away. And the danger was coming. Death was coming, as we said about uh, Masha Heddle. Tyrion and Catelyn brought that down on her. But at least the customers there, they had a choice whether to get involved or not. Now the game is in full-fledged and the villagers... They had no choice. Their entire lives, uh, they're either caught up in the war or they had it ended by the war already. I think George wants to point out to us that they might not have even had a choice in whether they want to testify or not. I think it's mentioned, I think Ned mentions that they probably just got dragged with um, Carol Vance and Mark Piper and uh, whoever else has brought them along. There's, some of them, at least, would probably just want to try and forget because they know this is going to happen again sooner or later. So there's no point. I'm sure some of them are pretty faithless in the... Westerosi justice system so they probably just like I don't want to go all the way King's Land in I don't want to retell the tale just let me alone and see what I can salvage of my life but obviously not. Now talking about the throne we get our first I think it's our first real description of the throne it's definitely our first description of anyone sitting on it um, and so I thought if the net if, if the Iron Throne cuts those uh, who are unworthy well Ned definitely doesn't get cut he gets away without a blemish despite him literally describing the throne and describing how sharp it is and um, you know his hands are always resting on the sharp bits but he never gets cut so I wonder if that's just a little tease there from George so after the small folk have told their tale and the, the river lords are getting all angry we get Pycelle with some further pathetic attempts at influence, influencing things and if he's trying to hide whose side he's on he's not very good at it he claims maybe um, you know, they're claiming that it was Gregor again, and he says, Well, it could have been anyone, there's lots of tall people. And like Cersei, uh, trying it on with Robert about Ned being drunk, in the same vein, Gregor again is probably just about the worst person to claim looks like someone else. He's pretty unique, so that's not really working there. And I think, uh, I just think Pycelle's pro Lannister, maybe even possibly just pro Tywin ness, is shining very strongly through. And then we get some more evidence of Ned having a superior military mind in this chapter. He he pretty easily deduces that Tywin is playing on Ed, Edmure's inexperience. He's bleeding off it, Edmure's strength so that he can make a he can kind of punch through when everything's uh, spread thin. So we get a little bit more evidence of that Edmure being green and Tywin not. He's been the opposite of green. He's very well um, well tested and well forged. And it's a good example of Tywin of Tywin playing the player, not the cards. He knows who he's dealing with with Edmure. He knows it's not Huster Tully who's commanding things, so he can take advantage of that situation. We're going to see a similar issue later in terms of small folk. So here, Edmure, he's putting, he's spreading out his forces to protect all the small folk. We'll see it kind of similar later when he allows all the small folk into a river run, even if it's not the best thing for a river run. 
which is very honourable and noble of Edmure. We definitely shouldn't be disparaging him because of that. But in, if we're talking pure tactics, pure war here, maybe it's not the best move. Who knows? I think Ned also does actually play quite a clever game of painting Tywin as the rebel against the crown, or at least he paints Gregor, which in turn kind of in turn kind of pulls Tywin in as it's his man. If Robert hadn't died, then this actually could have worked out pretty well to derail Tywin. Uh, alas, alas, alarm, alas, alarm. Let me read you this quote from Ned here. A bit after the small folk have had their turn, now he's talking directly to the lords. He says, I thought we were speaking of justice. Burning Clegane's field and slaughtering his people will not restore the king's peace, only your injured pride. And that's a great way to show the difference between Ned and Tywin. Although Tywin has strategy behind his actions, military strategy, there's no doubt he also he also inflicts great woe on the Riverlanders because they are under the protection of House Tully and it's a Tully who has kidnapped his son. So in Tywin's mind, he's going to get back at Hoster Tully and Admiral Tully because of Catelyn's actions. He's going to get back at their small folk who obviously have no part of it at all. And that's what we mean about the game coming down on people. We should also know that Ned sends another further, a further 20 of his own men away to join what will become the Brotherhood Without Banners. So his protection weakening further and we know what's around the corner and what effects that that is going to have speaking of what is around the corner let me read you this another quote this time from Varys and he is referring to Sir Ilan Payne and he says he does so love his work oh boy uh, again we know what's coming closer and I assume that this is included this is right at the end of the chapter I assume that George included this give a quick reminder about Sansa's horrible feeling about uh, Ill and Payne when she first met him and just bring that bit of foreboding back for what's about to happen. Finally then for this chapter and for today. So Tywin he originally wanted to draw Ned out and capture him because he didn't know that Ned was injured yet that Jamie had had this little scuffle. So his idea about sending Gregor out was to get Ned out of King's Landing so that he could be captured maybe because now there's also the idea that that he could possibly trade for Tyrion. I think that last part is a little more um, not so confirmed as Tywin wanting to draw Ned out. I think trading him is a bit more of a, just a theory. Because do we think Tywin would have actually done this if the situation had landed that way? If Ned had, if Ned wasn't injured and he had rode out, been captured, would Tywin have traded him straight up for Tyrion, do we think? Maybe there's a higher chance right at the beginning before it all really kicks off, but let's say that Robert's still uh, called the banners and come down because Ned is still captured. That's why he came down in the first place. So, I don't know. I think maybe Tywin knows that Ned is far, far too valuable to trade in terms of the war effort as well as everything else for Tyrion, someone he despises, even though... It's the slight against his family, and he needs Tyrion back to show that he can't mess with Lannisters, etc. But if he gives Ned back, that whole war changes because he now leads the Northern Army instead of Rob. They're suddenly a lot stronger. If they get Tyrion back, and especially as far as Tywin knows, this is a Tyrion without clansmen or anything like that, not as valuable. So it would have been really interesting, actually, to see which one out. Tywin's pragmatic pragmatism and strategy and worth on the war or Tywin's love of his own surname and whether he's going to protect the family name first I would have loved to see that come about but didn't happen that way so we'll just have to keep thinking and there you go that is part seven of a game of thrones so we've got four left 
Seems like a lot, doesn't it? But there's actually a lot to fit in, I think, if you get. A little bit quicker today, just over an hour. Because he's got through most of my notes on Sunday, so that's great. Glad they're still worth being of some use. And uh, I'm here always to pick up those scraps and the scrolls as well. So, there we go. Like I say, I hope everyone enjoyed that. We'll be back next week with, uh, with part eight, obviously. And I haven't looked at which chapters there are specifically, but I've got a good idea. I think Sansa and I must come back, and I'm pretty sure Daenerys does too. So we're going to have a, a slightly different focus, I guess, next week. But again, let me say thank you to Aziz and Shea, History of Westeros, to all our patrons, to everyone else for their listens, downloads. If you want to get in touch about Valor Redis or anything else, please do. Love to hear from you. Love to hear from love to hear from fans, other faces, people. It's always good fun. And uh, with that, I will say goodbye, and I'll see you next time.